The real Mrs. Astor, ruler or rebel? Caroline Astor, known just as Mrs. Astor, has often been thought of hands down as the most well-known and powerful person in Gilded Age society. She ruled with an iron fist clad in a soft calfskin glove from Paris, of course. With a wave of her bejeweled hand, you were either in or you were out. And if she chose not to know you, well, you just might as well pack up your social climbing dreams and take the next train to Toledo. But just who was this woman that ruled over the Gilded Age elite? Well, we have a few images of her from photographs and a dramatic, notable painting, and lots of accounts of the lavish dinners and balls that she gave. But do we really know her? I'll be joined on today's show by New York historian and creator of the masterful blog Daytonian in Manhattan, Tom Miller, who has some fascinating insights and opinions on this grandest of grand dames, imperious and perhaps imperiled, and will share with us just who this woman really was. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where every two weeks we sit down for a nice cup of tea and a chat about the world's upstairs and downstairs, in the grand drawing rooms and dodgy alleyways of America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. I am deeply honored to be joined for today's show by one of the New York architectural and social historians I admire the most, Tom Miller. If you're a follower of Tom's extraordinary blog, Daytonian in Manhattan, you will share my admiration. And if you haven't yet discovered it, I encourage you to sign up today so you don't miss a single post. He posts the unique history of a different building every single day except Sunday. Tom began his blog writing about buildings and locations throughout New York's history back in 2009, and astonishingly, now has over 3,500 posts. Tom is also the author of two books of architectural history, Seeking New York and Seeking Chicago. Welcome, Tom. I am so happy to have you with me today. Thank you for having me. Now, before we dive into a chat about this most extraordinary woman, I want to share with listeners just where we are, Tom. In honor of your appearance in the show today, I have returned to the library of the private Salma Gundy Club on Lower Fifth Avenue here in New York. Now, listeners will remember that I recorded my debut episode right here with the Bowery Boys. This room is filled with books dating back to the turn of the century, and that is the last century, my friends. The leather sofa right here and these big Windsor chairs and the sculptures of artists all around the room that were once members, it just brings old New York right to the present. And I encourage you to check out my Instagram, Carl the Gilded Gentleman, and I will share with you some photos of what we're seeing right now. Tom, how do you feel about this space? You devoted an entire post to writing about the building in the club. Doesn't this feel like old New York to you? This is an amazing space, and you're right. We're sitting in a room, as it appeared, pretty much in 1917. And there aren't very many of those left, I suppose. 
As we dive into our subject for today, Caroline Astor and just what were some of the myths and misconceptions of who she was, I want to take listeners back to a particular winter evening, and that was January 9th, 1899. The scene was Mrs. Astor's grand French-inspired double chateau that she built on Fifth Avenue and 65th Street just a few years before. She lived in one half, and her son, John Jacob Astor IV, but known to everyone as Jack, and who was sadly to die in the Titanic disaster, lived in the other half. The street in front was crowded with carriages and ladies in flowing gowns, fur capes, jeweled hair pieces, along with gentlemen in white tie, top hats, long coats, and opera cloaks, and everyone was making their way to the front doors. It was just after 11 p.m. Carolyn Astor was giving a ball. And not just any ball, her annual opera ball. Inside the drawing room, Mrs. Astor herself stood below the great portrait painted of her by Carolus Duran greeting her guests. She wore a dark velvet gown tinged with purple, much like the jet black wig that she now wore. She was decked in diamonds at her throat, on her gown, on her wrists and fingers, and it's said that the stomacher that she often wore around her waist originally belonged to Marie Antoinette. And in fact, some people even said she often looked like a walking chandelier. After her guests, numbering just about 400, greeted her, they moved on to her famous ballroom for the quadrilles and the cotillion, and then on to the midnight supper, including the ubiquitous canvas back duck and terrapin, and of course, bottles and bottles of champagne. Now, if you were one of the lucky to have been invited to a night like this, then that meant you were indeed one of New York's social elite. So, Tom, you've been very patiently sitting there as I described all that. When I described that scene with Mrs. Astor greeting her guests as, as she did so often, when you think of that, what are some of the first words that come to your mind to describe Carolyn Astor? Well, what's interesting about that wonderful detailed description you gave is that behind that very imperious grand facade was a, a very insecure woman. And that's one of the, uh, the things that we we tend not to see. You know, when we think of historical characters today, we very, mo- we always, not most often, we always see them one-dimensionally. We don't see the full round person. And so while all of these people knew Mrs. Astor as the queen of society, underneath that facade was a very sort of frightened and certainly tragic figure. <laughs> And that is why I'm so excited to have you on the show today, because I'd like to look at that a little bit more closely. And we'll be going back to her childhood and looking at her marriage, because am I right? Some of those cracks actually began then. They began absolutely in 1853 when she married the man she really didn't want to marry, uh, William Backhouse Astor Jr. When you hear the title of the show, Ruler or Rebel, what do you think of that? Do you think she was either of those or both or neither? She certainly was a ruler because she almost single-handedly created that high society that you just described. She and Ward McAllister literally created that in 1872. And so she ruled the society which she which had not existed before she did that. As far as a rebel, she was not so much a rebel since she very, very much emulated everything European. 
So she certainly wasn't rebelling against that deportment and those rules of etiquette, but she most definitely was a ruler. Well, let's go back and sort of pull this apart and see how this all came to be. So Caroline Astor was born Caroline Webster Skirmerhorn on September 22nd, 1830, which was when she was born way downtown. The city really didn't exist much beyond what's today's Union Square, not very far from where we are right now. Uh, and she was born in a wealthy merchant family. Now, Tom, Caroline grew up like so many young girls of her class in the 1840s of New York, but she was just a little different. Well, she grew up in one of the wealthiest families and one of the oldest families in New York, the Skirmerhorns. They went back to the 17th century. Her father, Abraham Skirmerhorn, was the patriarch of that family, and he ran a shipping company. She was the youngest of nine children, and that made a big difference in her, her life going forward. She was educated in private schools, like all the young girls of her class were. She was taught that she was better than other little girls who were not of that class, who were below that class. And as repulsive as that is today, a repugnant, it's simply the way it was. So that would have carried on with her to the end of her days, that she was of a better class of people. Uh, I think it's so interesting when when you had just said a couple of minutes ago, you mentioned her marriage, because, of course, when she became marriageable age, I'm sure her parents were more than willing to marry her off and to find the right husband. But of course, that's always a little subjective what the right husband means. But she, Caroline Astor married William Backhouse Astor, as you mentioned, in 1853. Interestingly, the year that this mansion was built. So we have a little funny Caroline Astor connection here. But you had said this was someone she didn't want to marry. So what was this marriage about? How did it come about? And what did it mean for her? The Astor family, the extended Astor family, all lived in the same Bond Street neighborhood by now uh, with all the Skirmerhorns. They all sort of lived in this very, very exclusive uh, enclave called the Bond Street neighborhood. The Skirmerhorns actually lived on Bond Street, or Carolyn's uh, family did. Right around the corner on Lafayette Street was William Backhouse Astor Sr. in his family. The thing about the Astors is that they had absolutely no social background at all. Carolyn Astor would later be known for one of her great rules was a European rule that it takes four generations to make a gentleman. Well, the Astors, John Jacob Astor I, arrived from Germany just after the revolution, and he came here to be a butcher. Um, he went into the fur trade, and from that money, he went into real estate, and that's where the Astor money came from. But the point is that the Astors had no background at all. They came from a butcher who arrived in, in New York City essentially penniless. The other thing was that William Backhouse Astor Jr., whom she married, was the second eldest son. That meant he would never be the patriarch. He would never get the great bulk of the wealth, which always was inherited by the oldest son. She would never be the wife of the most important Astor. Her parents wanted to marry her off to someone that would give her security. The Astors certainly had that. They were very, very wealthy. She was the youngest child, and she was a girl. Girls really didn't matter as long as you married them securely. If this was an, an arranged marriage, most likely the Skirmerhorn, her parents, and the, the Astors knew one another. They were happy to get someone 
with a good last name, and her parents were happy to get someone with a lot of money. This sounds a bit like Austria marrying France or Louis the Fourteenth marrying Marie Antoinette. You know, it sounds very political. It doesn't sound like there was much love in here. Am I correct about that? Totally logistic. And there was, I don't think there was ever any love between these two. And it started out right away with Carolyn telling her brand new husband that he needed to drop his middle name, go by his middle initial because backhouse sounded like a privy. <laughs> That's not a good way to start your marriage. No, probably not. And he did. He did do that. Uh, but he was not so very happy either. Uh, they would have four children, Emily, Helen, Carrie, Carolyn, and Jack. And as soon as Jack was born, his obligation was filled. He had an heir and he started philandering with, as his daughter Helen said, women of a lesser class. Well, how did Caroline feel about all of this? She's marrying a second son. She's got a husband that's philandering around after he's produced an heir. This, did this hurt her? She was humiliated. She was taught, as I said, from a child that she was better than these other women. And now her husband is preferring the physical company of women of a lesser class. You can imagine how that was a smack in the face. And the other thing was that he was doing it quite openly. So he was emotionally abusing his wife almost from the beginning of their marriage. So then what happened? She was married and she started her early life living as, as the young wife of many Gilded Age couples did. But then things dramatically changed because she wasn't ruling society yet. She was not even involved in society to any great deal up until 1872. She focused on the rearing of her children. But then in 1872, her eldest daughter, Emily, that was her debutante year. And that was very, very important in society. How your daughter was introduced to society made a great deal of difference down the road, even to as who might marry her. So she went to a man whose name was Ward McAllister, who knew everything about social etiquette and demeanor and the rules of society. He happened to be a, a relative of her husband through marriage. That's most likely how they met one another. But their relationship quickly turned that year from just focusing on Emily's debut to society at large. Ward McAllister very, very much wanted to be a part of high society, and he came from a wealthy family in the South, but the Civil War had pretty much wiped out their fortunes. He saw her as a vehicle to obtain a high society status. And so that year in 1872, they sat down together and they formed the Society of Patriarchs. They chose 25 gentlemen who had um, respectability, responsibility, and wealth. Ward McAllister later said, $1 million is respectable poverty. So these were the type of people, those 25 men. Now, interestingly enough, John Jacob Astor III and William Backhouse Astor Jr. were included in those 25 original patriarchs despite the fact that they did not have four generations of gentlemen behind them, Ward McAllister and Carolyn Astor sort of skimmed over that rule for these two. They made a little exception there. They yes. certainly did. So they then had the Patriarch's Ball. Those 25 gentlemen were allowed to invite five gentlemen and four ladies. That equaled about 375 people. That became high society. 
Well, now, what an interesting number that you mentioned, Tom, because clearly one of the most persistent myths of Caroline Astor is that supposedly she considered the 400 people that could fit into her ballroom, that was real society. But can you put the story straight here? Yeah, that's a a charming myth that we're going to live with for the rest of our lives. But in truth, in 1872 or 1873 at the latest, Ward McAllister gave an interview to a reporter from the New York Tribune. And in that interview, he said there are only about 400 people in polite New York society. He said, if you go beyond that number, you run into people who are either ill at ease in a ballroom or who put other people ill at ease in a ballroom. So that number, 400, stuck. The newspapers started calling society the New York 400. However, that ballroom story, I don't know where it came from, but we're stuck with that. Well, we're going to banish it from this podcast going forward. You and I, Tom, will. Now, I want to read a a little quote here and get your reaction to it. This is from a book that I I like very, very much. The book is called A Season of Splendor. It's by a historian named Greg King, and it's about Mrs. Astor and her circle. And he writes at one point, he said, she envisioned a ruling elite that would provide an enduring legacy to her country. By forming a set of stringent rules, by creating around her a caste that replicated foreign ideals, Caroline attempted to endow American society with tradition and a sense of noblesse oblige. Yeah, that that is quite true. And socialites in New York and Philadelphia and Boston had a sense of inferiority, if you will, when it came to, to Europeans which is one reason why American socialites traveled to Paris every single year to get their, their gowns done. They followed all the Parisian fashions, and they tried to emulate everything European so we could be on par. One of the things they had that we didn't have was, was titles. So one of the things that people like Carolyn Astor did was create palaces. We could have royal palaces just without the royalty. But you could go buy a title, though, couldn't you? That's (laughs) what happened starting in the 1890s. We started having what the British called penny princesses. Essentially, New York millionaires were selling their daughters, is essentially what it was, to get a title. Because if you had a title in your family, that was one big feather in your cap. Now, with this image of Caroline being so imperious and deciding who was in and who was out, that... That doesn't paint a very flattering picture of her. However, I recall hearing you share at one point some instances where she could be actually quite kind or benevolent. Absolutely. She, she did have a, a nice side to her. And once again, we always focus on the fact that she was Mrs. Astor and she was steely and iron-fisted, but she did have a heart. She refused to have gossip entertained in her house. She refused to entertain gossip in her house. Let me put it that way. She refused to lose her temper in public. And there was one instance in 1884 in November. She was sitting in her uh, sitting room looking out onto 34th Street. And there, for several days, there had been ditch diggers. They were digging a sewer or something like that. They were most likely Irish immigrants, certainly below her caste. But it was a, a warm day. And she felt 
bad. And she called her butler and had the foreman come to the top of her stoop. And then he had all the workmen line up at the bottom of the stoop. And one by one, the butler gave them a dollar coin. Now, that was about what they were probably earning that week. So here we are seeing a woman who had nothing to do with the lower classes, but yet she still had feelings for people of the lower classes. She just didn't let it be seen very often. Well, on that note of kindness, we're going to actually take a little break. I'm going to refill my cup of tea. Tom, I'm going to refill yours too. And we'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Hello, I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, and we're back now. Today, I'm with Tom Miller. Now, during our break, Tom actually said to me, I love that woman. Tom, I have to ask you about that. Why do you love Caroline Astor? Well, because she's such a fascinating, fascinating character, and she is so deep. I think a lot of people don't like Caroline Astor because so much of her was unlikable. But the fact is, when we start to really investigate her as a person. She was so well-rounded. Well, it was interesting because it was what she showed to the world was only part of the story, which is so often uh, the case. Now, Caroline would have these large, lavish dinner parties, and that's often what people think of her. And of course, the balls, some of the dinner parties were actually really auditions to get you to the ball. And if you got invited to the ball, then that was certainly your ticket to society for that particular season. But you could be dropped, I suppose, yes? Oh, absolutely, yeah. So everybody had to really be on their best behavior, right? And there were all these outrageous details of her, of her balls. There was, of course, the famous gold-plated uh, dinner service that she served on. But one I remember you had mentioned at one point was the flowers. What was the story of the roses at her dinners? At every dinner party, she would have red roses, American Beauty roses, long-stemmed American Beauty roses, in profusion. And the New York Times at one point talked about a dinner party she had given the night before. And this journalist actually counted the, the roses. And I, I can't remember exactly how many they were, but the cost in today's money was $25 a stem because, of course, New York City dinner parties were during the winter season. Summers were in Newport. So getting long-stemmed roses in December was a costly amount. So the roses at that particular dinner party you're talking about cost in today's money something like $10,000, I uh. believe. So so Caroline also, like so many others, wealthy and not, started moving uptown. And in the early 1890s, she moved uptown and she built a new chateau up on Fifth Avenue and Central Park. Well, what precipitated that? Why did she leave, I suppose, a perfectly good brownstone on 34th Street? It was a perfectly good brownstone built by her husband in 1862. But the problem was in 1890, her next door neighbor, John Jacob Astor, William's brother, died. Now, because he was the eldest son by New York City and Boston and Philadelphia and European protocol, the patriarch of the family could drop his first name and go by Mr. Astor in this case. So right before he died, he told his son, William Waldorf Astor, when I am dead, you will be Mr. Astor. William Waldorf took that to heart. And when he, his father died, he not only called himself Mr. Astor, but he had all of his wife Charlotte's 
calling cards reprinted to Mrs. Astor Newport and Mrs. Astor Fifth Avenue. And he was very, very upset when he realized that his aunt Carolyn next door had done the very same thing. Uh Her cards now said Mrs. Astor Fifth Avenue. He went next door and he confronted her about this. And she said that because her niece was 16 years younger than she, she had every entitlement to being called Mrs. Astor. Now, of course, she knew very well that was not the case. Everyone in society knew that was not the case. Everyone knew what the rule was. Nevertheless, she refused to back down. She called herself Mrs. Astor. The feud between these two families, which only had a garden between their two mansions, became so heated that William Waldorf Astor, in 1891, tore his father's house down and built the Waldorf Hotel right next door to his aunt's house to snub her. And then he packed up and moved his family to England forever. And she, of course, became Mrs. Astor. She won that battle, right? She won the battle. Absolutely. And probably the war. Once Carolyn moved uptown, after she moved up there, well, what was her life like? Didn't she have some rough patches at that point? What was going on? Her husband died in 1892. Her daughter, Helen, died in 1893. So she was out of the social circle for almost five years because of mourning period as well. So by the time that she re-entered society, began entertaining once again, society had not really been sitting around on its hands waiting for her. So many of the younger socialites, like Grace Vanderbilt, for instance, were making inroads, and they were much, much different than Carolyn Astor, who was so very, very rigid. They were much more fun. Now, one, I want to read a little quote here. Edith Wharton, about whom I talk uh, so often, and, and to whom Mrs. Astor was actually a first cousin uh, of her father's, actually, Edith Wharton portrayed Caroline Astor in a short story that she wrote. The story was, is after Holbein, and it was written in 1928 when, when Wharton was living in France and was really looking back into this Gilded Age period. And the portrayal that she creates, it's a character named... Adelina Jasper, which sounds awfully close to Caroline Astor, does it Does it not, uh, was not really a very flattering portrayal. And I assume she thought, well, Caroline had died 20 years before, so she was free. But let me read just a little quote of that. I'm so curious, Tom, on your, uh, on your response to this. Poor Adelina Jasper. She had been New York's chief entertainer, leading hostess, the newspapers called her. Her big house on Fifth Avenue had been an entertaining machine. She had lived, breathed, invested, and reinvested her millions to no other end. Hundreds, no, thousands of dinners, on gold plate, of course, and with orchids and all the delicacies that were out of season had been served in that vast, pompous dining room, which one had only to close one's eyes to transform into a railway buffet for millionaires. That's not really very nice. What do you think about that? Well, she was absolutely right. And also, uh, Edith Wharton was not especially charitable to most uh, 19th century socialites. Despite the fact that she grew up in 19th century society, she was not especially kind to high society. But she was right about Mrs. Astor. Uh, Carolyn Astor, that was her life, entertaining. And unfortunately for her, Again, by the time that she opened that grand new double mansion in 1895, 
she was starting to be left in the dust. And it was another part of her tragedy. You know, up to this point, she was, I mentioned earlier that she was insecure. I think a great deal because of her husband's philandering. She was concerned about her looks and her attractiveness. Uh, she became obsessive about it to the point that she would no longer allow photographs of her to be taken. She had to wear wigs because her hair was falling out. She refused to go to daytime social events because she would have to appear in the sunlight. So here was this pretty tragic figure as it was anyway that no one really saw through. And now when she started again in 1895 to entertain, she I'm sure she was quite aware of the fact that she was a sort of a an anachronism. I'm really feeling a tremendous amount of empathy for this woman at this point. This is this is a side to her or, or the repercussions from events in her life that we just really don't think about. Not long before she died, Carolyn Astor actually had her own say. Will you talk about that? What happened? She certainly did. You know, in 1905, she gave her last ball uh, in that massive ballroom, and a few days later, she fell down the marble steps that grand staircase in her home. She never recovered from that, either physically or in spirit. And then after that, she started to have a series of mini strokes, I believe, because she would have periods when she was not lucid at all. She closed up the house. Um, she was in that perpetual dusk in that house surrounded by her servants, but no one was entertained and she was not entertained after that. In 1908, in November, she summoned a reporter from the New York Times to the mansion. Now, in her entire lifetime, she had never given an interview to a newspaper. She said that that's the sort of thing that a gentlewoman shuns. But this time, she called a New York Times reporter and she gave him a lengthy interview. I think she knew that the end was coming. And one of the things she said in there that she knew that other women would come up to take her place. But she hoped that she had left at least one significant mark on society, and that was that people would behave themselves. One of the things she said is that there are people now who are giving entertainments that belong under a circus tent rather than in a gentlewoman's home. So she was getting her last punches in there. She was trying to say she did not approve. It was only about two weeks after that article came out in the Times that she passed away. Extraordinary that we even have her speaking because that it a is. woman would not really have, have done that. And certainly someone like Carolyn Astor. What do you think was her greatest legacy, either at the time or to us today? If we could ask her what she wanted her legacy to be, I think she would tell us that she wanted to be remembered as a gentlewoman. Unfortunately for her, she is not. She is remembered as... A, an imperious, self-important, demanding, controlling woman. And indeed, she was all of those things. But she was certainly much, much more than that. The legacy she leaves us today, I guess, is um, that she was the queen of New York's Gilded Age society. She pretty much shaped what entertainment was and how people behaved and dressed. I think that was the legacy that she left us. And Tom, I, I have to ask you as my final question, probably my favorite question of the whole interview, if you could sit down 
with Caroline Astor today, just the way you and I are sitting uh, today. And assuming she, of course, would give you an honest and complete answer, what's the one question you would like to ask her? I think I would ask her if she had any regrets. And I would hope that she would say that in 1890, she should not have attempted to take the title Mrs. Astor. What a difference in her life that would have made. Well, there would not have been that great schism in society. William Waldorf Astor and his wife Charlotte would not have left. The mansion would have still been there. And she would not have had that horrible taint that really followed her for the rest of her life. Now, it wasn't spoken about, but people knew what she had done, and it was not attractive at all. Tom, you have given me, and I certainly know all of the Gilded Gentlemen listeners, much food for thought today and and a way, a glimpse of looking at Carolyn Astor in a little bit different way. And I cannot thank you enough for that. Now, you had mentioned at one point that you were working on some other projects. Apparently, there was a counterpart of Caroline Astor elsewhere in the country. What are you working on? Will you share a little bit of that with us? Give us a little bit of secret preview. Yeah, I'm working on a uh, webinar for the spring on Bertha Honore Palmer, the wife of Potter Palmer, the great Chicago millionaire. And she was a fantastically interesting person, just as uh, Carolyn Astor is. She ruled Chicago society just as as uh, Carolyn did. But she had some things that she had to overcome. And that's the fact that the East Coast, New York, Philadelphia and Boston, looked at Chicago as a cow town, a porkopolis, it was called in, in New York City newspapers. She had to overcome that. And she did. She actually did a a truly Carolyn Astor type thing when she rented a villa in Newport one summer and then had over because 1893 was the year that was the year of the Chicago Exposition. All of the heads of state, the queens and the duchesses and the empresses that came to see the Chicago Exhibition passed through her house in Newport. And that's the way she made her point. I still wish I lived in the Gilded Age. What a great way to make a point doing that, like building a hotel next to you, you know. Tom, thank you so much for joining to me today. It's been wonderful spending time with you. Thank, thank you so much you. for having me. <laughs> and I can't wait to have you back. I hope you'll consider coming back and maybe we'll talk a little bit about uh, Bertha Palmer in Chicago. And thank you to all my listeners for joining me for another episode of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. I invite you to be a patron of the show by visiting patreon.com slash thegildedgentleman. Your support on Patreon allows me to continue to do the show, and you will receive bonus content every month, including the series Under the Velvet Rope and The Gilded Gentleman's True Crime Club. And please, let me hear from you. Send me an email at carl at thegildedgentleman.com with any ideas or thoughts, ideas for shows. I love to hear that. Make sure you subscribe to the show so you don't miss a single episode. And if you love what you hear, well, then do leave your calling card with a good word. I'll see you soon. And after all, what's life without a little glint of gold? <laughs>